This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Keynote address and then and then lunch, as I said, will be here. Um, and um, the food will be available for that. have a seat here. They can go out in the conference center. We're really hoping that will be a time to network and to meet other people that are attending this conference. Um, so that will be from 12 to 1.30. And then 1.30 and at 2.30 are the breakout sessions. Those sessions, there will be four of those that are on this floor. Um, two will be in this room. And then two uh, will be on the other side. There's and then two will be upstairs, and that the rooms that the session um, is going to be located in and listed on your program, Nate David's room, Ryder, and so forth. So the Bryn Mawr room and the Haverford room are the two that are upstairs. And it's on the, uh, the easels that you'll see outside the entrances. It also tells you if the, the room is on this floor or upstairs. And always feel free. There's going to be people at the registration desk all day. If you have any questions, please feel free to uh, to ask them. So the breakout sessions, each session will be repeated, so you get to choose two and go to the room that that group is in. Um, and then the final session, the closing session, will be here in the Villanova room again. We're going to bring representatives of all those breakout sessions together on the stage and think about what insights we've gathered from the day and where we need to go for our next step. And so we'll conclude the program then. I want to acknowledge, in addition to the four sponsors that we've had today, the, the planning committee and the people who've been working very hard on the details. Um, so the U.S. Magistrate Judge Timothy Rice has been instrumental in hosting many of our meetings and helping to get this group together downtown, and so I thank him. And if for those of the planning committee who are here, they want to acknowledge themselves. So Judge Rice, we thank you. <laughs> And he's been helped by also Judge Philip Restrepo. And I don't know if he's in the room as well. And from the Augustine Independence Rights of the Poor, um, we have Father Paul Morrissey, Father Jack Egan, and also Damian Long, who's getting shared for this week. And from the Philadelphia Mural Arts Program, Robin Fusman. And from St. Joseph's University, Sister Betsy Linehan. There are also many others who have helped. Um, Andrew Silk was instrumental this morning. In fact, bringing our keynote speaker here. She flew in this very morning from Milwaukee. Um, so we thank Andrew. And um, I think the others who have helped along the way, um, I want to also publicly thank Sharon Disher, who many of you saw on the form. She is uh, the Administrative Assistant in the Center Peace and Justice Education. She's done a wonderful job, as well as many of our work-study students making today possible. So, uh, one other logistic I wanted to mention, I forgot, is that the restrooms are right out. These doors to the left and to the right, um, so if you need that. And, the evaluation forms, we tried to give them out as people were coming in. Um, if you didn't get one, there's a copy of, there's a stack of the evaluation forms on the registration desk. So um, we really would love your feedback. Please fill this out by the end of the day. There's a box on the registration desk where you can turn these in. Okay. All right. Well, I think we are ready then for our um, first.
first event, um, and that is an important one. We are so lucky, as I said, our keynote speaker has flown all the way to from Milwaukee to be with us this morning, and she is a woman who can really give us a, a wonderful and dynamic understanding of what restorative what it is that we're here for today. Um, and just a, a few words to introduce you to our keynote speaker. Justice Janine Gesky is Distinguished Professor of Law at Marquette University School of Law and the Director of the Restorative Justice Initiative there. And before uh, assuming these positions, she was Interim Dean of Marquette uh, School of Law and Interim Milwaukee County Executive. For five years, from 1993 to 1998, she served at uh, the Wisconsin Supreme Court, uh, and prior to that was uh, a Milwaukee County Circuit Court judge. Justice Skeski is uh, extremely well-versed and well-experienced in sort of justice. Uh, I've heard her presentation before, um, speaking of some of her experiences, and it was the clarity and the, the strength of her words that inspired the planning committee to want to bring her all the way from Milwaukee today. So we're very lucky to have her. And for the next hour, we uh, will give you to her. And uh, we'll have some time at the end for question and answers. So please help me in giving a warm, warm welcome to Justice Gatsby. Good morning. It's, it's amazing. I mean, I got up at 3.15 this morning because I had to teach my class last night and somehow I didn't have to wait on the runway too long in Philadelphia before I got to the, to the checkout. So I'm glad I'm here to be able to uh, spend this day with you on this very, very important topic. Um, I, I was chuckling when I heard my resume because my husband hears sort of the things I've done in my life, he just says she can't hold a job very long. So it's, it's just a different perspective on my career. <clears throat> um, I'm very passionate about restorative justice, and, and um, I, what I like to do with an audience when I'm talking to you about it is to take you through some of the experiences I've had with it, um, from being a non-believer, um, to now devoting probably most of my life to the work. And uh, when I was a circuit court judge in Milwaukee, that's a general jurisdiction trial court judge, um, I, nine of my 12 years as a judge were in criminal court. My last assignment was homicides and sexual assaults. I did those full time. And it was during that time, I think, I heard about restorative justice, so that was probably in, in the 80s. And I thought, you know, that all I, I mean, my only concept of it was a victim offender meeting, and I thought that is the craziest thing I ever heard of. What victim in the world is ever going to want to sit down, and, and particularly in the kinds of cases I was handling, and look at the guy or the woman who committed this horrific crime? And so I had no interest in restorative justice, and in fact, when I got to the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice asked me if I would head up a task force on restorative justice, and I said I had no interest. It's someone else to do it. So they now tease me because, of course, that's all I do. And uh, so I'm going to try to take you through that journey a little bit about how I went from um, a non-believer to a passionate, passionate believer in the importance of this work, um, both within, around the criminal justice system, but also in our communities and lots of other contexts where harm is being done. Um, the way that I was introduced um, to the concept in a way that made a difference 
was I had been teaching in the prisons for about 20 years as a trial judge and then as a Supreme Court justice because I wanted to see what happened to people that I sentenced. I wanted to understand what was going on in the, in the prisons um, because as judges you're told things, but I wanted, and I wasn't checking up on my, the men or women I was um, sentencing, but just to spend time in prison. So I did that and I continue to be in the prisons on a regular basis. Um, but I also was spending time with victims groups, um, and you'll find in a few minutes when I give my definition of restorative justice, I was with community groups, I was with victims groups, and I was with offender groups, which are the three points of restorative justice. And um, I, I had the privilege of being invited to watch um, a man who had been a partner in a big firm, who had left to become a United Church of Christ minister, um, set up a restorative justice program in prison. And um, he is a fabulous person. And I said, well, I'll go watch. And he ran, and I have now run for 12 years, this three-day intensive program with like what I would call very high-end offenders. And what I mean by high-end is people who have high-end sentences. There are, there are usually about 25 <clears throat> men in this, in this group. This happens to be a maximum security uh, prison for men. Um, probably at least half of them are never getting out of prison. Um, they've got consecutive life sentences or a life sentence without parole. Um, and the others are there for a variety of very, very serious felony offenses, um, many of whom have very long sentences. And we bring into the, the process two other groups, the other two representative groups. We bring in survivors of very violent crimes or serious crimes. And I will tell you that uh, many of you are versed in restorative justice, so I apologize to those who know a lot about it, but for those who are, are first being introduced today, I, I want to do a few definitional things. And many victims much prefer to be called survivors. And so I often use those terms interchangeably because uh, people who have survived a crime and moved on and, and been able to, to regain you know, parts of their lives or all of their lives really want to be known as a survivor and not a victim although we still use victims a lot in our terminology. So anyway, I use those interchangeably and wanted to tell you that. And the third group is I bring community members. I bring in um, about 10 or 15, I bring in students, I bring in some business people, I bring in um, business people, I bring in newspaper people. Um, we're doing it next month, and there are three people coming from Ireland who want to set up a program in the prisons in Ireland are coming. We've got a filmmaker from Germany coming. He's going to film. He's actually been there once before. And what do we do for three days? We build a restorative justice community for three days. Now, let me do my definition of restorative justice. And I don't use PowerPoint. I use my arms. Um, it's a triangle. <laughs> and uh, the triangle of restorative justice on the top of the other point are victim survivor. One point is community. And the third is offender, for lack of a better term. And there's a better term, but it's the person or persons who set into motion the harm that's been caused. And uh, restorative justice is based on a lot of uh, very old traditions, some Native American and First Nation in Canada, some from the Maori tribe in, in New Zealand, some from uh, the Mennonite community, and lots of other traditions. Um, but when you're looking at this triangle, what harm happens, and the only difference between harm and a crime is that the legislature has decided to criminalize it. So we know that there are things like racial profiling or discrimination or things that cause a lot of harm but that aren't criminal. There's no criminal. 
So when you're looking at, in my view, when you're looking at restorative justice, you can apply it to harm, whether it's criminal or not. But we're going to concentrate today on so it's a criminal aspect. Um, when, when you're looking at it, these, these entities are interlocked. And, and there is what I will call, and you'll hear me repeatedly talk about, the ripple effect. So if we look at a victim. Um, if you look at our traditional criminal justice system, we'll take out a perjury um, Most statutes prohibit the entry of a, of a residence without consent, with intent to steal, or with intent to commit a felony, and that's a burglary. But if, how many people here have either been burglarized or know someone who's been burglarized in their home? Okay, a lot of you. And you know, if, if we were to go around the room, you would tell me if you knew, if it was you, what was taken. Maybe it was jewelry, maybe it was electronics, maybe it was other things. And although those were lost, maybe some things had sentimental value, our courts will look at the fact that something of value was taken from the house. If I were to ask you what the impact of those residential burglaries is, it's, it's much bigger than that. And really, the lasting impact and the deep impact is the emotional, psychological, your relationship to your home, how comfortable you feel, whether you feel safe, you know, whether you look at your house the same way, whether you look at people in the neighborhood the same way, all those things, and, and the more frightening the experience, the deeper the ripple effect in your life. Now, around each of these points, there are these circles. And if I were to ask each of you, and you could think about this, whether if it was you or somebody else you knew, that was burglarized, who else did it impact? Well, it impact people's children, people's friends, people's parents, people's colleagues. Anybody who knows the person who's burglarized gets impacted. You know, children whose, whose elderly parent gets burglarized feel like maybe their mom shouldn't live alone anymore. Maybe we should move her to a safer neighborhood. Maybe we should put her in an assisted living place. You know, mothers who hear their teenage children or their, their college-age children have been burglarized Think maybe they shouldn't be on that campus. Maybe and so you have that ripple effect of all sorts of people. When you have violent crimes or extremely devastating crimes, the ripples are deeper. In sexual assaults, often the partner or spouse of the person who's been assaulted is as deeply affected as the person who's been assaulted. Incredible guilt, feeling like I wish I would have prevented this, what can I do? And they feel helpless. And, and often, if you talk to sexual assault survivors, people, relationships break up. Most marriages after a sexual assault will not make it. Um, and I've, I've talked to lots of survivors because I work with a lot of them, and, and they'll say, you know, I was crazy for that time. One, one day I want him to hug me, the next day I don't want him anywhere near me. One day I want him to protect me from people, the other day leave me alone, let me take care of myself. And I send all these mixed messages. And meanwhile, the other person is dealing with their grief and feel guilty dealing with their grief because they're trying to be a partner to the person who was hurt. So you have all these circles. And you know, if you talk to children of people who, who sustained a, particularly a very serious crime, it's huge. It's huge, the impact. They feel helpless. Their parents have been hurt or somebody close to them. Um, I'm in the process, and I'm going to talk a little bit about victim offender dialogue a little later in the talk. I, I'm, I'm, I, I actually handle a really violent five-count homicide in five different houses of elderly people a number of years ago. And the granddaughter of the woman who was killed 
now, 20 years later, has an interest in sitting down with the offender and to talk to him about it. And she talked to me about how that changed her life 20 years later. Um, if you look at community, there, I, this is how, these are sort of my own definitions, um, how I look at it. You have small community, large community. So a few years ago, there was a number of residential daytime burglaries in my house, in my, uh, in my uh, neighborhood in Milwaukee. I live, in the, I live in the city. And um, I didn't know the people. I frankly didn't even know which house or apartments had a burglar. But I was impacted because I knew burglaries were happening during the day. So in the morning, I'd make sure the doors were locked. I'd make sure the dog was out. You know, when I'd come home late at night, I'd close the garage door before I got out of my car. Um, and more importantly, in terms of relationships with the community, I looked at people on the street differently, right? I'm trying to look to see, do you think he's the burglar? Do you think those kids are the burglars? You know, and, and it impacts me. Now, I didn't know the victims, but it's community. If you can think of crimes, if suddenly some crimes happened on this campus, to people that maybe you don't even know, it would impact you. You, you know, if, if there's sexual assaults happening, or attacks, or armed robberies happening to students at night, it changes how people behave, how they see each other, how they interrelate, how safe they feel, and sometimes the choice of whether they even come to, come to school here, right? Somebody comes visiting and there's a headline that there are five serious crimes here, they may pick another school because of it. I mean, that's the kind of ripple effect impact that it's different than what's happened to the victim, but it's, it's a ripple nonetheless. The big ripples I talk about is tonight, if some child is abducted out of her bedroom in California, a little girl, and it's all over the news, or people watch Nancy Grace, God forbid. There are children all over this country that are afraid to sleep in their bedrooms if they see that. They think something's going to happen. And just as bad, there are parents, and many parents, and I've been one, and now I'm a grandmother, who live in fear that their child's going to be abducted. Even though it may be thousands of miles away that you saw it, but you see that and you think, you know what, I'm not letting her ride her bike to the park anymore. I'm not going to let my kid go over to the movie theater by herself. No, you can't go there tonight. You know, it, it, it affects everybody's conduct, even though, so that's community. And you all know, and I'm sure, I, I know Philadelphia faces the, the same issues that any urban city does. You have neighborhoods where there's crime, and it can change the neighborhood. You have a shopping center where there are a number of crimes. It can close down a shopping center. We've lost shopping centers in Milwaukee where there have been some notorious armed robberies or stabbings in a, in a parking lot. And before you know it, no one's shopping there. And then people that work there don't have jobs. The housing market goes down. I mean, it's, it is the ripple. And I have said often in Wisconsin, we do not have the death penalty in Wisconsin, and, and I, I'm grateful for that. Um, but it was on, it was on a, a, a referendum, but it was advisory referendum probably about two years ago. It passed by between 60 and 70%. And our legislature, for whatever reason, as conservative as our state has become, has not yet pushed it. But I say we're one homicide away from one homicide at a politically volatile time, and somebody makes it an issue, we will have the death penalty, while everybody, while many other states are getting rid of it. So those are the ripples that come from it. Juvenile waivers, sending 13-year-olds to incarceration for life, that's a ripple effect of crime. Okay, let's quick look at the offender. 
and the offender is treated differently in restorative justice, and we'll, I'll talk a little more about that, because he or she, in, in, and I'm going to say in a pure case, because it's not always pure, you know, sometimes there's other things operating here, but, but, but in a classic crime, the offender has chosen to engage in some behavior that set this ripple effect off. And so there are consequences for an offender, but it's okay that there are consequences. We're gonna talk about, and you're gonna spend a lot of time today talking about what those consequences ought to be and what that accountability should be. But they're treated differently. But we often forget the circles around the offender. We forget the children of the offender. 75, the last statistic I saw, 75% of children of incarcerated offenders will be in jail sometime in their lives. That's a shocking number. That's a ripple effect. Um, you know, we have, we have the mothers of offenders. I mean, every time I go to the prison, and I know many people in this room do prison work, it breaks my heart when I go into a prison and see the visitors. And I'm glad people are visiting the offenders, but you see all these little children running around, and you see these parents there visiting. And, you know, all those people have been harmed by what happened. Whatever it was, it happened. Okay. So the restorative practices that we look at, whether it's circles or community conferencing or family group conferencing or victim offender dialogue, we don't bring in the community quite as much there, but we do some, or circles, which we do a lot of, um, which are all different processes, try to have those underpinnings of those principles. Okay, so let me get back to my circle in prison. And uh, I, I do share these stories, and people have heard me before, will probably hear them again, but, but it really is sort of the foundation of what changed my heart, and I'm gonna share a little bit of that with you so you can have some sense, and I, it's really speaking on behalf of the survivors I work with and not me. Um, we, have a, we have a number of survivors who come in routinely over and over into our prison program and have for years because they find healing in their storytelling. They find healing in watching the reaction of the community and the offenders to hearing their stories. And, and there, there are two survivors in particular that I'm going to talk about um, a little more in length. One woman, is the name, her name is Lynn, and she was um, married to a police officer in a middle-sized town in, in Wisconsin. She was in her 20s, as was her husband Bob. They had two small children, about four and six, and she what we do in the circle is for a whole day we do circle work with a talking piece and we build community and then the second day the survivors tell their stories and she tells all of us about her life before the crime and she talks about her children and her husband and how he really went into law enforcement because he he loved working with people he didn't like using his gun um, and um, but he really really liked being a police officer and she describes in great detail, and I can't take the time to do it today, about that last night in the And she describes, you know, saying goodbye to him that night as he went out on duty, kissing him goodbye, and as he walked out the door, she describes saying, honey, be careful, something she told him about. And he turned and said, don't worry, God and I are like this, and he walked out. And she describes giving the children baths and reading to them and putting them in bed and lying in bed. She had her windows open, it was in October, and it was a warm night, and she heard sirens about two o'clock in the morning. And she woke up, and she's a very uh, spiritual woman, and, and she prayed. She said, God, just watch over Bob, and he's in some kind of police chase, you know, stay with him. And she went back to sleep, and about an hour and a half later, she had, and 
she said she knew. She knew the minute she heard the knock. She'd heard the siren. She heard the and she said she woke up and it was, it was knocking and she thought, oh, let it be a nightmare. Let it be a dream. She pulled the covers over her head, she said. So, I mean, it's that kind of detail that she shares. In any event, she eventually goes downstairs because it, it, the knocking continues and she knows it's not her husband coming home because he has a key. And, you know, he wouldn't be knocking like that. And she gets down and there's the ashen face of the lieutenant and, the, and a woman officer to stay with the children and he says, we've got to get to the hospital. There's been an accident this way. He says, she's been in a car accident. He said, no, the dog's been shot. And she thinks, oh, in the head because she knows he's got a bulletproof vest on it. And they said, no, but he's not, not in the head. But we got to get there immediately. And she describes again in detail. And some of you may have been called to the hospital in the middle of the night. It's a horrible thing when, somebody, when something tragic has happened because your head is swimming, you're trying to wake up, you're trying to take this in. And of course, she knows something's just horrible happened to her husband. She doesn't quite know what. And she gets to the hospital and she's going into the hospital, sort of the emergency room doors, and she hears this sort of crying, wailing thing, and she's trying to figure out what it is. And she, she, she kind of focuses because she's not really focused, and it's police officers crying. And they're running, and other officers are running like things of blood into the ER. And her parents and her, and her pastor are already there. And she said, where is he? Where is he? And they said, he's in that emergency room. And um, she said, I want to go see him. They said, you can't. And she said, I'm going. And she stormed into the room. And she described that her husband was laying out on the table. He had his chest cut open. There was blood everywhere. They literally had his heart in their hands. And they were begging him and up in his heart. And the blood was flowing out as fast as they were trying to put it in. And she said she walked around. She said they didn't see her because they were so busy trying to save him. And she walked to his head and looked down at him. And he lay there with his hands up. And she said, I knew he was dead. They were working on him, but I, I knew he wasn't there anymore. And she said she leaned down and kissed him on the top of his head. And she walked out. And she's walking down the hall trying to take this in. And her husband that she just kissed goodnight a few hours, to a few hours earlier is gone. And as she's walking, again, she, all the victims talk about this super sensory thing that goes on. And, sort of, and, and they're hearing, she's hearing noise again, squeaking. And she's walking, and she's hearing the squeaking, and she's thinking, what is that? And she looks down, and her tennis shoes are tracking her husband's blood down the, her footprints of blood behind her. And she, now it's like 28, 30 years later, and she'll tell all of us that walking across a gym floor with wet tennis shoes, she's back there, just like that with the blood on her shoes and thinking about her husband. She, she goes on to share a number of things, um, and I don't have time to share everything, but, it, but it's that kind of voyage into a victim's story that touches people's hearts. And she, one of the things she shares is that, um, and she, she was very angry at the criminal justice system. And I don't have a lot of time to talk today, but the re-victimization that happens for survivors in our system or in other contexts, and, and I'm a Catholic and I have spent a lot of time, and it's not my speech today, but on the clergy sex abuse thing. And I can tell you it's, it's, it is akin to that, the system that somebody wants to turn to when they've been victimized. And if that betrays them, that is a profound, profound ripple effect and secondary effect. And sometimes is more long-lasting than the original victimization. 
So, but I won't, I, you know, she was lying to by the district attorney, the offender got out on bail and called her, she had to move out of town, I mean, a lot of things happened. But I, the story I want to tell you, there are two quick story, other stories she shares. One is that one night, and she talks about how enraged she was after her husband died. And, you know, she talked about having to tell her children, and it was the hardest thing she ever did, and how her little six-year-old daughter kind of sucked her thumb for years, put her thumb in her mouth, and sucked her thumb for another two years. And she talks about one night driving and being so despondent and so depressed and just thinking, I just want this to end. And she's driving, the two children are sleeping in the back seat, and there's a semi coming in. She said she, she thought about just pulling in front of that semi and you know, taking all three of them out and having them down them. And she said she pulled to the side of the road with her heart going like that, thinking, God, what was it? I almost do. She tells the story, and I can never say the Our Father without thinking of uh, Lynn, because she tells the story that much later, one night, she was saying the Our Father with her children, and she said, I've said it tens of thousands of times. And I got to the part about, you know, um, forgiving trespasses, and, you know, forgive those who trespass against me as I have forgiven those um, who have trespassed against me. Forgive me as those I'm getting messed up, but you know what I'm trying to say. And uh, if you want, and notice when, if those of you who are Catholic, when you go to Mass, we take a, a gasp of air between those two. We stop. If I trespass, and then we say, you know, as I forgive those who trespass against me. Because we don't want to be forgiven like we forget. <laughs> we want to be forgiven, forgiven. You know, and, and she said, she said that, that, that part of the Our Father and stepped back and thought, yeah, you can't mean this. You can't mean I forgive the man who murdered my husband, who murdered the father of my children. And she's very funny. She said, so she went to the Bible. Are you sure that's what it said? <laughs> and she said, it said it. And she said, and she said, God, if you want me to do this, you better show me how, because I don't know how to do this. So she shares that story. The other story, the brief story I want to tell you is about Kim, who was a school teacher who was eight weeks pregnant at the time. She had a little girl. The morning before she went out teaching, she lived in a suburban community, another Dallas class, another state. She's out jogging, and her husband was with her little daughter. And she said she's very careful, she's very aware, she's very, you know, she's not a meek, quiet woman, she's very athletic. And she's running one morning and she runs these different patterns every day to be safe and everything. Absolutely out of the blue, there's a gun to her head. She never saw the guy coming, she never heard him. And it's like six o'clock in the morning. And she said, I'm thinking, what, what does he want? You know, and she's trying, and, and he's I mean, telling her to, you know, shut up and lots of final language. She takes us in detail. He takes her at gunpoint into his car, holds the gun to her the whole time, keeps threatening her, tells her not to talk, not to look at him. And she's trying, and she's thinking about this baby that she's pregnant with, and can I get out of the car? And am I gonna, is he gonna kill the baby? And what's he going to do? And you know, and she said she really didn't know what he wanted. I mean, it didn't even occur to her that he wanted to sexually assault her until later. And anyway, he he drove her, and there's a lot of more details to this, but he drove her to some uh, sort of a forest preserve, took her in, and he, she looks at us all in the circle and says, you don't know what it feels like to have to strip nude at, at, at gunpoint. And what that feels like, there is nothing more 
debilitating, and she, you know, you just, you just there, and he, he put that. He told her to lie down on the ground, and he raped her. And um, he's holding the gun next to her the whole time, and then he got up and he told her to turn her head, and he put the gun to her temple. And she said, at that moment, I thought that was my last second on earth. And she said, I, I, she works with victims and families. She says, I can tell family members of homicide victims who've been abducted what their loved one was thinking at that moment. They were thinking about their family. I was thinking, she said, I was thinking, this is how my daughter and my husband are going to know that I am my life This is where it stops. And for whatever reason, she, I mean, meanwhile, she kept doing, you know, all sorts of talking to him, trying to talk him out of it. She told him at that point she was pregnant. She hadn't told him before. It didn't matter. Um, she told him that her husband would never believe her, which wasn't true. I mean, he's, she's still married. He's a, he's a wonderful man and was able to, to get through this time. Um, but for whatever reason, he let her get dressed and put her in the car. She still didn't know he was going to kill her, and eventually he let her go. Um, she talks about running away from the car and not wanting to run home because he threatened her and he, she doesn't want him to know where she lives. And, and her husband found her cowering in the bushes. And for a week, she would not talk to the police. She did finally consent after much controlling on her husband's part to go to the hospital so they could check the fetus and make sure that it was all right. And she said, actually, that was the best thing that could happen because that's what gave me hope that day is that being hurt that I knew I had to keep going. But she literally walked around with a pusher knife in her hand for a week, thinking the guy was gonna come back. Um, she talks about now, it's 20-some years later, and there's a, there's a sort of a neat story. She talks about this baby being a survivor as well. This baby became um, a West Point graduate, a woman, and uh, is a nuclear engineer now. And she said, she's a survivor as well as I'm a survivor. Um, those stories, touch, and I know, you know, I know they're touching, and they touch not only the offenders, but everybody in the circle. And I think, you know, even as a judge, having handled these cases for years, I'd never heard the stories. I'd never really heard the stories. You know, you hear these, what's relevant in a courtroom, and then whatever it is, the, the victim can manage to get out being totally intimidated by a judge and the offender sitting there and sentencing, which is usually about two and a half minutes. And I never heard those stories. And I can tell you, it's those stories that transform that room. They transform it in a multitude of ways. And what happens is we do circles. And other people, and we, everybody uses a talking piece that reacts to it. And there are 40 stories in that room. Because the offenders do, and, and others, some community members, I mean, we really, we, we, we don't identify ourselves with these groups. I'm doing it because of the triangle. But we just become community. We're interspersed, we're not, we're not offenders. You know, we talk about sometimes the men in green because they're wearing green and we're not. But, but for the most part, I mean, and, and the men say they've never had an experience like this where they are part of a, a global kind of caring community that are going to hold them accountable for what they did, but also to talk about the ripple effect on all of us and how it is as community holding offenders accountable, we can help restore harm. How can we do something positive? That is the heart and soul of restorative justice. And you know, I can tell you, I'll tell you just a quick story from, from Lynn's um, um, storytelling, is that one of the times an offender came up to her afterwards and said, I'm going to tell you something, Lynn, I've never told someone. I'm a drug dealer. 
I was in prison before, I, I deal cocaine, I was driving from Minneapolis to Milwaukee with cocaine in the car, I've been released, and I decided I was never going back to prison, obviously he didn't succeed in that, but, uh, uh, and uh, he said, I had a 357 manual next to me on the seat, and I was driving this cocaine, and I thought, if a police officer stops me, I'm gonna kill him, because I am not going back to prison. And it was late at night, and he got sleepy, and he kind of dozed off, and he swerved. And next thing you know, red light, blue light, you know, in the uh, rearview mirror. And she said, so I pulled over and I, uh, you know, I took down the window and I grabbed the 357 manual and I put it under my arm right up against the door. And the cop came over and said, uh, sir, uh, you're swerving, what's going on? You know, and he's got the question. And the guy says, uh, oh, sorry, officer, and I was tired, blah, blah, blah. And the cop says, you know what, there's a red step down the road. I'm going to follow you down there. You go down there and you slip it off. Um, that was it. He said he was six inches from being dead. And he said to Lynn, I'm telling you that because I want you to find that state trooper and tell him I almost killed him. His family almost lost him. I mean, he was so impacted by what Lynn had said. And of course, they couldn't find it because there wasn't even a ticket. I mean, there was nothing. But the state trooper, Lynn works with the state troopers, and they asked if he would write it up for training. And people say to me, how do we know these offenders aren't being manipulative? Because those of us who are judges know, you know, we know that we see a lot of manipulation and we can't always see it. And I said, because what they're saying isn't in their interest. It's not in your interest to say, I'm a drug dealer and I almost killed a police officer if I had the chance. No one knew it. And he wrote it up for the training bureau. That's the kind of, that's the kind of ripple effect that comes out of the good. So in restorative justice, there are three fundamental questions. One. Who and what was harmed? And I've described all these groups, and there are many more out there. And it's, it, when you're looking at the restorative justice lens, it's all that. The second question, which gets to sort of, you know, what, what's going on, what was the harm? What, and was it financial? Was it economic? Was it physical? Was it emotional? Was it spiritual? People lose their faith. People become you know, moral. I mean, there, there are all sorts of people who lose their families. I mean, there's all sorts of things. And the little things. I mean, I work with a lot of family members of homicide victims. Some people don't celebrate Christmas anymore because the homicide happened around Christmas. You know, 30 years later, so I did a victim offender dialogue on a case that was, was 28 years later. They had never taken a family picture again after the one brother was killed. I mean, that's the kind of ripple effect that offenders never hear or community members for that matter, and the few people may know or people that are close to them. So who was harmed and what was the harm? And the third question is the challenge for all of you and everybody that works in restorative justice and for the community and for the justice system is what do we do to help repair the harm? How do we work toward repairing it? And the harm is all the things that we described. So it's not, it's, you know, and the focus has got to be the victim. We've got to focus, if there is a victim or survivor, that's got to be the focus because they're the, the direct hit of the, but there are all these others that are totally ignored by our judicial system that often ignored by our community. I can tell you that working on the clergy sex abuse issue, uh, you know, you talk, and many of you may, because most audiences have people, you may know people that were abused. Uh, or were accused of abusing, or were convicted of abusing, and then you will know all sorts of people around those individuals. 
And if they were, if it's somebody who's been accused, the parish member and everyone else, they have been deeply affected by what happened. And our whole global church, for those of us that are Catholic, has been impacted. And, and you know, and, and the response sometimes has been good and sometimes it's not been good. Um, and I know that in Philadelphia, you are struggling with a lot of those issues and continue to struggle with those issues here. And, and but I think, you know, as, as a community and those people, people of faith, particularly who, who want, you have to look at how we restore in lots of different ways. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's litigation, sometimes, but it's more than that. I have talked to a lot of victims um, who have come forward and alleged clergy sex abuse, and people, you know, people in the parish or people that knew the priest or the clergy or the sister or the lay leader turn on that victim, right? You, it couldn't have happened, couldn't have happened. And after it gets substantiated sometimes, and there are lots of, no one goes back and apologizes to that victim. And the victims tell me that, that some of them want to, you know, it's to continue to go to church. Some people never want to walk into a church again. But um, there are ways to do that. So I think, you know, finding ways, and I, I know there's some prison ministry people here, and I am a strong believer in prison ministry. I totally get it. That's one of the reasons why I like going to prisons. Um, but I want to challenge anybody about what you're doing for victims. Is your church doing a victim support group? Are you providing, because what I don't have time to tell you is the, is the 40 soldiers in the prison, but people who work with offenders know this. The majority of people that are incarcerated, particularly for violent crimes, but for most crimes, have been victims themselves. Physically abused, sexually abused, emotionally abused. And maybe if we as community had addressed the victim's needs when they were victimized, maybe they wouldn't be sitting in a maximum security prison somewhere. And maybe they would have had a whole trail of victims behind them who are probably innocent victims that had nothing to do with their victimization. And some of the offenders start getting that. Some offenders in this process will say, you know, when Lynn talks about her rage and depression or other victims talk about the rage and depression, they say, I get that. Because I was sexually abused when I was nine years old. Or I was beat, or I had this problem, or I had that. We had one guy in our last group that talked about, when Kim talked about, you know, the sexual assault, she talked about having some sense of safety, you know, in her home, because it didn't happen in her home. And he, when he got the talking piece, he said, I don't know what that's like. The most dangerous place on earth for me as a kid was my house. My father abused my mother and abused my sister. And it went on for 15 years, and it didn't stop until one day when my mother got courage. This is how he put it. My mother got courage and poured a pot of boiling water over my father. That's when it stopped. And he said, I went looking for him. I would have found him. He said, the next, it was safer for me to be out in the streets with gangs than in my house. And the safest place for me is right here in the maximum security prison. Now, what kind of community allows children to find that the safest place for them is a maximum security prison? And, and so what happens in these processes is that everybody becomes humanized. And I've had police officers participate in these processes, and they listen to offenders' stories, and they'll go, you know, I don't excuse what you've done. But if you're sincere about trying to turn around your life, I'm willing to help you. I've had police officers hand their business card to an offender in a, in a re-entry circle. I've had incredible moments. One of the one of the one of the uh, reentry circles we did. We had a number of gang members coming back in the 
community. We had some moms whose sons were killed on the streets of Milwaukee, and we had a variety of other kind of people. We always had police officers in our um, city circles. And it's one of those, these moving stories. You know, and, and when you do restorative justice, part of it is you've got to trust the process. You're, you're true to the principles, you, you learn the processes, and then you got to trust. And, you know, even though we're people of faith, it's hard to trust, especially people like me who like to control things. But, but I'll tell you, if you let go, and you, I have a sign in my office that says, trust the process. Amazing things happen. I mean, I, the spirit comes alive in ways that, and I tell people, I find God much more present in my restorative justice circles and my maximum security prison, my 1880s maximum security prison I spent time in than anywhere else I go. Uh, and, um, but this officer, the, we, we, the question we would ask when we get people together is in a community circle is how has violence impacted your life? And we ask questions that everybody can answer so that it's not just the offenders or not just the victims. And um, this officer, um, who was a white officer, got the talking piece, and he held it for a little while, and then he said, I was called to a shooting at the city of Milwaukee a few years ago. And he said, I got there, and I was the first officer there, and people were screaming and falling down and crying. And he said, you gotta tell me what happened, what happened? And somebody said, someone shot in the house. And he said, so I ran up those stairs, and I pulled out my gun, because I didn't know what I was going to encounter, and I got into the house, and I went in the living room, and there on the floor was a two-year-old little girl with a bullet hole right in her head, gasping. And he said, I quickly hosted my gun and picked her up. And he said, as I held her, I could hear the sirens and the screaming and everything, but it was like I was in a bubble because I was just present to this child who took her last breath in my arms. And he said, uh, she's haunted me. I dream about her. I think about her. I talk to doctors and nurses. Is there something I could have done? And then he looked at the circle and he said, I want everybody to know that every time I get called to a shooting in the city of Milwaukee, I take her with me. There was a person that walked out of that room that thought that that police officer doesn't care. And I told him afterwards, I went up to him and I said, officer, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing that story. He said, you know, I've never publicly talked about that, which is the power of the circle and the power of the trust in the room in a sense of community. And I, and I said, you just did more, and it certainly wasn't his intent, but I said, you did more for police relations in that story than a $100,000 ad on TV about, you know, friendly police officers offensive. And nobody walked out saying he doesn't care. I mean, people may walk out and think most officers don't care, you know, and that's, that's, you know, that's sort of the work that needs to be done. People have to hear each other's stories. Okay, I'm going to just spend a little time on victim-offender dialogues. Um, they're often called victim-offender mediations. And the difference between what I'm doing, for example, in a prison, are those victims of, you know, these are terms of art that doesn't reflect on the people who speak. They're surrogate victims in that they are not the victims of the people in the room. They tell their story to other offenders. A victim offender mediation or dialogue is where the offender speaks to either the victim or members of the family. Um, and that can happen across the board um, from the smallest of little offenses to first degree intentional homicide, first degree murder, and some of them are done on death row, and some, there have been some horrible ones done in Pennsylvania. Um, and in the, in the um, clinical program that I run, we do crimes of severe violence, so we're doing the, the homicide and sexual assault. I just talked to a woman yesterday who was gonna meet with her stepfather who sexually abused her for uh, 10 years. Um, and 
and now it's serving time, and 10 years later she wants to meet with them. These cases, um, one of the things that's important about these cases is that they're done very sensitively for the public. Because remember the victim was there. We don't want to force a victim into this if a victim doesn't want to. That's rule number one. Rule number two, there ought to be some support person of some kind if it's, if it's about the time of the crime, who can help facilitate a discussion with the victim if that's appropriate. And what am I talking about? Well, you know, I, there are a lot of programs that do victim offender mediations, either pre-charging or so our district attorney's office had a program, actually, that helps, helps victim offender dialogues, actually, in, it's called community conferencing, but they do it while the case is pending and different places. and. Um, there's a, at least in our state, and I suspect in most states, there's, there's support there for a victim, whether it's, whether it's a victim advocate or whether it's someone from the district attorney's office or there's a police officer, there's somebody the victim can talk to. And, and there can be a discussion if, if, there, if there's a possibility of a victim offender mediation um, about that topic, determining whether victims, most victims are gonna have the same reaction that I had, like, you've gotta be kidding. You've gotta, why the, Heck, what I went to, uh, why the heck would I, uh, my granddaughter, I gave an interview with dollars on the political thing the other day, my granddaughter, my granddaughter Elizabeth was sitting on the steps and she said, Grandma, you said a bad word. I said, I did. She said, H-E-M-O, Grandma, I was a little voices of conscience there. But anyway, uh, why would you want to? And I, let me just quick tell you a, a, a story about one that happened. There was a, there were there were some juveniles in in a town called Appleton, which is um, about a couple hours north of Milwaukee. It was a pretty big town, and these kids were driving around looking for someone to mace. I mean, it makes no sense, right? They're juveniles, and they couldn't find anybody. And then they go in the country, and there was a, a big sign in front of a farmhouse that said "Jesus loves you." And the lead guy, the lead juvenile, said, "Let's get those Jesus lovers," which then turned it into a hate crime. And um, he and, I'm going to call the second guy Billy, and I'm just going to talk about Billy, because the, the first guy, I think, went off to a detention center, but um, went, rang the doorbell, the husband answered the phone, in the middle of the night, they sprayed him on with mace in his face, and they took off. And uh, the, uh, so they caught the kids, and Billy, and with his parents, um, had an interest in a victim offender dialogue. And this young couple, with three little children, said, and the victim advocate talked to him and said, well, you know, we'll give you a chance to explain sort of the impact and, you know, you could ask some questions. And so anyway, they, they went through the prep, which is real important on victim offender mediation, and they met. And during the meeting, the um, husband could talk about not only the physical pain and going to the hospital and all those things and the, you know, the dust doctor on the bill and all those parts of it, but the emotional part of it, that you know he's afraid to leave his family alone. His kids are afraid to sleep in their own bed at night because they were awakened, you know, with all the, the rockets and the police and everything else. And see, so you have this, this sort of rippling trauma that happens to the household afterwards. And the wife wanted the dog, and and he, the husband kept thinking, what if my children had answered the door? Would they have done that to my kids? And of course, he's, they're saying it to this kid, and the kid is like. You know, tears running down his cheek. I mean, it never occurred to him, right? I mean, it was just, you know, whatever they thought it was. 
And so after they got through it, then they started asking the kid questions and asking him about his background and asking him about it. He had dropped out of school and had recently re-enrolled. And by the end of it, they, and this happens in a fair amount of particular juvenile cases, where victims almost become parental to the offender. Because what's happened is the offender has come from this big black evil cloud down to this kid who probably has got a troubled background, and we only do these where, there's, where they admit it. I mean, we're not, we're not trying the case here. And, and you know, he apologizes and, and, and said, you know, what can I do? And they said, you know what, we want you to sign a document that says you will do everything you can to finish high school. And of course, that's not even enforceable, but it's what they wanted, and he agreed to do it. And I tell you that story because I heard about this Probably about six months later, I was at a news conference on restorative justice in Appleton, and somebody had invited this husband and wife to talk. And this guy obviously wasn't used to public talking, and the police chief was there, and then, you know, their officers there, and everything. He got up and he told the story, and he said, this was so wonderful. If I had known so much good would come out of this, I would have been maced earlier. <laughs> but, you know, if you think about the traditional judicial system, the kid would have been charged, maybe he would have been put on probation, Maybe he would have made an order to make restitution. He probably wouldn't have paid restitution. And he never would have known all that. And there are studies, and you will actually probably hear more about that, that show, particularly on these low-level crimes, restitution rates go way up, where, where an offender has had a chance to see a victim and listen and look in their eyes and hear about it. Recidivism collapse. Now, there are, there, I'm not going to tell you there aren't other studies that are a little more equivocal, but generally those are the studies that say recidivism drops. And even where there is more recidivism, where there's more recidivism, or I guess that's redundant, recidivism, that they, um, they tend to be lesser crimes. And the third thing that happens, which is very important because of what I said earlier, is victim satisfaction in the process is way up in the judicial system. Victims who choose to do this, now, not all victims are going to do it, they shouldn't. People should not do it. They don't want to do it. Um, but if they do, they have great, generally great satisfaction. That doesn't mean that you know everybody walks out happy, but it really does change it. Now let me talk about the more serious crimes. I've been. I've just come back, and I'm actually going back on Sunday up to Toronto. I'm training all the Episcopal priests up there on clergy sex abuse and. and restorative practices and things that they can do in this conduct. And we had a long discussion about forgiveness. And, and I told them, I'm going to share it with you, one of my favorite forgiveness stories from the um, victim offender dialogue where there wasn't the words forgiveness. Before I start that, though, I want to say that forgiveness is a dangerous word because it means different things to different people. And, and I can tell you that a lot of victims call it the F word because they're saying, look, I'm the one who was hurt. Don't come and tell me that I need to forgive. I got enough going on here. And I, I talked to a number of victims who people in their churches have said you just need to forgive and they head for the hills. That may be true. They have to walk their own journey support and love and forgiveness takes lots of different faces and, and sometimes for some people they will never say the word forgive because for them it, no matter what you say to them it means it was okay it didn't matter and, and that's not true on, on serious things 
Victims will tell you, and survivors will tell you, there's life before serious crime and life after, and they're two different things. That doesn't mean healing hasn't worked, and as Lynn says, these are ING words. I love it, and I always take this to heart. Forgiving, healing, repairing, they're not done. Some days it's there, and some days it's not. It's not you can check that off, okay, I forgave it, I move on to my next thing on my list. It doesn't work that way with anything serious. And you can think about rifts in personal relationships with family members. It's never the same. Somebody has betrayed you. You can move on. You can even reconcile in a relationship. But you'll never quite feel the same if they betrayed a confidence of you or betrayed you somehow. And, you know, it's just a little different. That doesn't mean it's bad. And maybe in some ways it's even good. But it's different. And so it's an ING word. And, and so, you know, I talk to victims, I just had a conversation with this victim yesterday once, that, that for some people, and particularly people who are very religious, you know, forgiveness because it's such an important component of our faith is really important. And in my experience is people want to, often, some people want to forgive in their heads, but their hearts are dragging behind. And, and you know, I, you don't want to put any more burden on the victim. That needs to be. That doesn't mean you can't support them. I can tell you that prison ministers, in all good faith, have said to many victims, you just need to forgive him, he's doing much better. And you will set that victim back in their therapy, in their lives, and on their head. Um, that's why we are very careful on the way we have victims come into victim offender dialogue and the way we talk about forgiveness. Do I hear a forgiveness? All the time. I have family members of murder victims hugging victims. But here's the forgiveness story that I want to share with you because this is really, it really sort of epitomized sexual assault, horrific sexual assault. And years later, the victim decided that she wanted to meet with the offender in, in the prison. And a friend of mine who herself is a sexual assault survivor and also a facilitator was going to facilitate this meeting. And they went through, and a lot of what the victim wants to do is to be able to have that place and space to say, this is what's happened in my life as a result of what you did. Um, and then to say, you know, what were you thinking? Why did you do this? You know, what, what else? What happened in your life? Who are you? All those kinds of questions. And, and those can take hours of dialogues. And, and it really is trying to get to know each other. And then at some point, and this happens in a lot of meetings, and it's very interesting because most of the work as a facilitator on these, on these big cases is done prep. They take six months of a year to put together. That's how long we work with them before we put them together. But at the meeting, I almost say less than five minutes because it's all done and they just have a conversation, a dialogue. And I call them, that's why I like dialogue, because it's a dialogue. They're not negotiating a settlement here. They're, they're talking. And um, so then they ask about the offender. But after we get past all that tough stuff, and it happened in this case, people do like when you go on vacation. So some of you have traveled internationally and you see somebody with a shirt that says Philadelphia and you get all excited, right? <laughs> oh my gosh, what do you do? You're a teacher, do you know? Yeah, we all do that, right? We're always trying to find the connection to some other human, you know, you know oh, you live in Chicago. Do you know my brother lives in Chicago? <laughs> I mean, we're really funny about that. And, and I've, you know, I've done it, and sometimes you actually find connections, which is really interesting, but, but Victims and offenders do that. And, and, and I have one, two, two daughters of a homicide victim, two adult daughters. It's a horrible homicide. 
And after we got through all the tough stuff, they, they said, well, where did you live as a kid? Well, we lived on the north. Maybe your ball used to live in the our backyard. And I'm sitting there thinking, I can't believe we're having this conversation. You know, I have to just gone through this murder of their, their father. But on this sexual assault, what they wound up talking about was that they both had Native American blood heritage in their lives. And so they started talking about Native American traditions that were important to their families. And um, so they talked about nature and Mother Earth and sunrises and sunsets and the importance of that and the, you know, the, the, the various directions and all the things that are very, very much Native American. And then they talked about some other things. And then the, the victim went and asked the facilitator to go in the hall. And she said to her facilitator, I wanted to forgive him, but I can't. I, I just, I can't bring myself to forgive him. What should I tell him? And Penny told her what we always tell victims is you can either say nothing or tell them the truth. I mean, if you don't want to lie about anything, don't tell them you forgive them if that's not, if that's not coming from your heart, because this is a, a dialogue from the heart. And so she goes back in, and she, they talk a little bit, and she, said, she tells them that. She says, I, I was hoping to say I could forgive you, and I, I can't. Um, and this is what he said, and this is, this is the beauty of these processes. He looked at her and he said, I would never expect you to forgive me. But if you ever decide that you want to forgive me, you don't have to tell me. You can go to a hilltop and watch a sunrise with a that was such a gift. Talk about restoring harm. He got it. Forgiveness was about her, not about him. And, and it was about her healing. And he gave her the one thing, I mean, he couldn't restore the harm he had caused by raping her. But he gave her a tremendous gift that day. And what, what I mean, you don't call that a miracle moment. I mean, you know, that that comes from a man who brutally sexually assaulted somebody. I. One last story, and then I'm, it's 10.30, so I, I will stop. As you can tell, I, I can't think of what up with my story, so I love them. Because it's, I mean, to me, you know, there are parables like out of the Bible. I mean, they're just amazing stories. I facilitated probably about six years ago um, uh, a, bru a brutal homicide. The offender at the time was a 14-year-old girl. And she, like a lot of 14-year-old girls to get herself in trouble, had been brutally raped, had been beaten so bad by her father, she'd been hospitalized, was unfruitful, and had gone away, done all those things. And she was hanging around with a couple of boys and on the streets. And the, the, boy, the boys, although only one participated, decided to burglarize uh, an apartment near a relative's. And so one boy and her broke into this apartment. And in the apartment, was a woman who had MS, who was sitting on the bed, her wheelchair was to the side, and the boy grabbed a state knife and stabbed the woman 32 times in her. And um, the, um, the girl um, grabbed some things, so she continued in the crime, and burglarized, and they took off, and they ran, and they got caught. She was the first female in Wisconsin to be sentenced as an adult at 14 for homicide. And she was, at that point, she was detained still in a juvenile facility but treated differently for two years and then put into the maximum security women's prison at age 16. 
Um, she had a lot of trouble, and a lot of these kids that I've worked with, you know, when they're older, talk about, you know, they have to be in trouble because they have to protect themselves. If they're not in trouble, they get victimized. But anyway, I did the victim offender dialogue at age 20, she was 24. And she, um, the sister of the victim, who was very, very close to her sister, and really a sweet woman, wanted to meet with her, and we actually taped it. And it was a wonderful meeting. Um, but I remember um, um, Amy, who was the victim, the sister of the victim, and we have an eight by 10 picture of the victim sitting on the table and all those homicides. So sometimes the offenders, it's the only time they've ever seen the face. This was the first time she'd seen the face of the victim, because she didn't really see it in the course of that brutal attack. Um, and Amy said, you, you know, do you know how many times he stabbed and he said, she said, no, I'm 26. She said, 32. And the state knife was in a U shape by the time he was done and stabbed. And, uh, you know, she kept saying, I'm so sorry. I don't know how I got involved. I'm so sorry. And uh, at the end, you know, Amy honestly said, she said similar to the other victim, I, I, I understand that you came from a tough life and that you had tough circumstances, but I can't forgive you. Maybe someday I will be able to, but I can't now. And that was the end of that. And I had not heard from them. And someone told me, and I had the two of them to my class about a week ago. Jessica got out a year ago, um, the offender. And they are going out and speaking together, side by side. And Amy answered. I mean, she now feels comfortable using the word. And it was funny because they, we sat in a circle with my class, and the two of them sat there at the beginning, and they talked like old friends for about half an hour about a variety of things, about things that were going on in Jessica's life, and she's actually doing very well, and she, you know, and, and, and Amy was asking her about things, and they done they talked to a, a women's prison program and other prisons. So that's what restorative justice is. It's trying to take the harm to recognize it, not to be in the blaming mode. And how it fits in the criminal justice system of things, we'll hear lots of different things today, and I know you're going to hear from an exciting panel who I'm looking forward to hearing from. Um, but the heart and soul of it is who was harmed and what was the harm, and how do all of us work to help repair that? Thank you very much. Somebody had hostility. If they just want to go in and scream at them, then I'm going to do it. 
Um, so it really is, you know, what we say is it's a, we create a safe environment for a very difficult conversation. I'm not, I, you know, I had a mom of, of somebody who was killed in a car drunk driving car accident show pictures of her son in the casket. I mean, they're not easy. We went through the autopsy because that's her pain. You know, and she wanted him to know that. And so, and even though, I mean, she forgave him, forgave this offender, but, you know, it's not an easy conversation. I can tell you that I've never had an offender or a victim regret going through it. And some offenders, murderers, have told me it's the best thing they've ever done in their lives. Um, and, uh, you know, it really does change their lives because they, they see the world in a different way. They go from being sort of victim of the criminal justice system, which a lot of people see themselves as, understanding that they're accountable, but there's somebody that cares about them. And that that what everybody's looking for is for them to be responsible and to do good in some way, even if it's only inside the prison. Any other questions? Yes, sir. I'm from New York City and we don't have a program. And we would like to start I can tell you that there is somebody who does them in New York, and it's Mark Collins is his name. He's head of um, dispute resolution for the state courts, but he does a fair amount of victim offender dialogue. He's been doing it for a long time. He and I have done some work together in Turkey, um, and uh, he's, he's actually with the state courts, so if you put Mark Collins in. But if you send me an email, I could, there, there, probably, there are other programs too, but he, sort of, he knows where the programs are in New York. <coughs> One more question. The question is whether there are there's a sort of a training, a standard training program, and whether there's a certification. There are there are you know the field has sort of developed a 40-hour training, particularly for serious victim offender dialogues. And usually we don't train people who've not done the the, the shorter ones. Um, Three days of, of training probably is enough. There, there, there really is no certification program. Now some states, it, some states, a lot of states don't have programs. They come and go, that's one of the problems. Um, but a lot of the programs are run out of the um, Department of Corrections. And so they may require that you know they have some training, certain training. Some states use a lot of community volunteers, some don't. Um, I know that you know the, the grandfather is the same age I am, but the grandfather is sort of Justice Howard Zier, you know, is from Pennsylvania, and the Mennonite University has done a lot of fabulous work, and uh, they have run great films on this. And, uh, yes. Well, actually, I wanted to say that the Department of Justice Office for Victims of Crime has guidelines for these programs. Okay. And that is really where you should start. Great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. All right, I'll be around this morning at least, and so um, I'm looking forward to the rest of the morning. Thank you very much. Have a good day. The panel, including the victim and offender, family member, victim and family member, and moderating this panel is Sister Elizabeth Lennon. And as I mentioned, she was one of the planning committee. And just to briefly introduce you to her, and then she will introduce you to the rest of the panelists. Sister Lennon is Associate Professor of Philosophy at St. Joseph's University. She's been teaching there since 1976 and has served uh, 15 years uh, during that time as chair of the philosophy department. And her research uh, touches on violence and restorative justice. So she is very well versed in these issues and um, also works concretely with them. And she serves as a facilitator to the alternative 
violence program, uh, the one that takes place at Greater Prison. And she also teaches in the Inside Out program, the Philadelphia Prison System, of course, called Dimensions of Freedom. So we're very lucky to have her and her expertise here with us today. Very, very blessed to have these four panels. So I will now turn things over to Sister Betsy and uh, hope you all enjoy this panel. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, the stage could not possibly have been set better for this panel than the way Judge uh, Justice Gesty said it. So I won't say anything further about restorative justice. We're going to hear the voices of some of the people who are part of the communities that are in, have been involved in the criminal justice system in ways they prefer not to have been, probably, but in fact, I'm sure of that. Uh, just as a footnote before I introduce them, though, I just want to say there is uh, a center in Philadelphia, Good Shepherd Mediation Center, that does do victim-effect mediation training. So if somebody asked that question, I just want to give them a plug. I'm going to introduce all of the panelists at the beginning in the order in which they will speak so that the panel can have a flow to it. And we hope to have time at the end for questions from the floor. Now, there's some these are sensitive issues, and so the panelists have signed a release to be videotaped and officially given permission. You all haven't done that, so we are going to take questions from the floor, and we're not going to take your faces in case somebody says something that they would rather not be part of the official record I come up with them. So just to let you know that. Our first speaker is Victoria Green, who is the founder and executive director of EMIR, Every Murder is Real, a grassroots organization honoring the memory of her son, Yavir Green, who was murdered in 1997 at the age of 20. Amir educates youth, professionals, and the community about the effects of drug-related homicides and addresses the trauma that follows the loss of a loved one as a result of a murder. Father Mark Shin was ordained to the priesthood of the Russian Orthodox Church in 1972 and served a number of parishes. He has been the pastor of St. Andrew's Russian Orthodox Cathedral in Philadelphia's Northern Liberty Society section since 1985. Uh, he is married and the father of five children. And he is speaking as the survivor of a violent crime. Our third panelist is Michael Whittington. Michael was involved in a criminal offense. He has spent time in prison. He is now on the roll and he is working as an assistant artist at the City of Philadelphia Rural Arts Program and he will speak about from the point of view of his experience. Michael is also the brother of a murder victim. His younger brother, Markel Wright, was murdered in Southwest Philadelphia in April of this year at the age of 22. And our last panelist is Alice Seddon. And Alice is speaking from a point of view that we often do not even think about. She is the sister of an inmate sentenced to life without parole in Pennsylvania. <laughs> So I would like to simply call Victoria up to the microphone. Good morning. 
School of the Prison System. I started in 1984. And in 1997, my only son was murdered. He was 20 years old. Uh, can you imagine working at the prison, your son being murdered, and having to go back into the prison? Um, the young man that murdered my son was only 19. And when they arrested him, where do you think they brought him? Right to the prison where I was working. And at the time, I was in a state of total anger and rage. And I decided that I would kill him and in prison. I've been there for a long time. People trusted me, even though they, they search your pocketbook every time you go in and out. When you go to lunch, they search your pocketbook. But they never really searched mine because they trusted me. So I thought about, well, I'll just get a small gun and I'll put it in the bottom of my purse and I'll put my makeup bag and all the junk on top of it and they'll never know. And then I'll call him because I was a drug and alcohol class, drug and alcohol counselor slash social worker. And I would just call for him to be brought you know, out on the unit, and I just go in and shoot. And I was like, "Wow, is this how it happens? Such hurt and rage and anger." Um, then I thought about every checkpoint that I went through in the prison. Each one of those guards would lose their jobs, and um, they trusted me. They had family. Um, I thought about my four daughters who have lost their brother now to lose their mother. My mother, who I was very close to, who dropped dead. So then I realized, I can't do this. I can't do this. It's too many people who would be hurt. And then I realized that, you know what? You killed my son. You're not going to kill me. You're not going to kill my whole family. You're not going to wipe me out. This is the end. This is where it stops. The gun, the bullet stops here. And that's when I decided I have life. Let me live the best life. Make the most of my life that I can because I have life. And my son at 20 years old, all his hopes and dreams and desires not to be fulfilled. So that's when I made my turn around and decided to live. And at the time, I was getting counseling and support from the Grief Assistance Program, and I'll say they saved my life. And then I decided to start talking about what a family goes through who has uh, suffered homicide and started doing workshops and uh, did two conferences at Rose, one at Rosemount College and one at Temple University on drug-related homicide. So that's what I'm doing now, working with families who have been affected by homicide and violence. And I am there to give them voice for healing, to be with them through their pain and suffering because it's crucial. 
it's crucial to have that type of support if you want to make it through such a horrendous, horrendous experience. So thank you. Good morning. The uh, 6th of July, 1995, I had taken a day off to help an old friend move from one house to another. And then I went and did a hospital call in the suburbs. I always avoid the suburbs, they're sort of scary. <laughs> uh, and uh, I came home at 10 o'clock and parked my big old Ram van, which at that point only had the two front seats in because it was moving furniture. I noticed three young men walking down the sidewalk, but I saw one of them was a child, so I wasn't worried. But then I saw that they were sneaking behind the van, and then as I was opening the door, one of them was holding a gun to me, and uh, I tried to grab the gun away, but the others were also armed, so I gave up. They made me lie down in the van, we drove around for an hour, uh, they broke most of my ribs, uh, knocked me out several times. Then we went over to Camden, where they took me out of the van and shot me three times. Um, the experience was to me bizarre more than anything else. Uh, luckily, I have a long background of faith. And uh, this is a Catholic school, I can say this, uh, when I was a seminary student, I used to spend the weekends in a Russian convent near, on the outskirts of Paris, where I was studying. And the nuns taught me actually much more than our professors ever did. But one of the things that I remembered that night was that the nuns said, if ever you are in serious danger, Simply repeat the Hail Mary. I did that, and uh, as I was being shot, I, wonder, I heard a woman's voice say, turn your head to the left, and just then, the third bullet grazed my right ear. Um, I pretended I was dead. They didn't look very carefully. Then they drove away with my van. Uh, I waited for a while, got up, found help. They were arrested in 40 minutes. Um, and then all sorts of things, of course, started to happen to the three people who were arrested. They were all young, and one was a child. He was 15 years old. And uh, frankly, he looked about 12. He was very small. That's why I said, oh, there's a child, I wasn't worried. Um, that made me rethink childhood a bit. But, anyway. um, but for them, several Especially, I'm going to concentrate on this youngest one. I call him JC. Uh, he was the one who lay on top of me in the back of the van with a gun to my side and who ultimately took me out and shot me. Um, the several shoes, in a way, started to fall for him. The first is that this turned out to be a federal crime. So while they were first taken to Camden County Jail after 
few days they were transferred to the FBI and fell under the federal system. Uh, JC was lucky to have a very fine lawyer appointed by the court, who is now judge, Felipe Restrepo. Um, they had, the U.S. attorney had a very good, tough prosecutor. In fact, in her office there was a big wooden plaque engraved with the words, Eat Flaming Death. And she had been a military lawyer, and during one trial she had said that to the opposing lawyer. And that became her claim to fame. But um, in addition to being a federal crime, uh, it was determined that he would be tried as an adult. Uh, I became very upset at that point because he was a child. I spent an hour with him in a very intimate contact. This was a child. And uh, I had asked questions about the process because you're, you're not, I'm not allowed to be part of that process that is between the judge and lawyers and so on. Um, the reasons that they gave for trying him as an adult I found unacceptable. I found that there was too much of a mixed message being given to children. You're 15 and you're a child to be protected if you do everything right. If you do something wrong, you're no longer a child and as we can as we see, are subject to all of the sentencing mandates. Um, in addition to that, there were mandatory sentences because of the number of guns involved. This was a new a law that had been passed, which this case, in part, was to test. And uh, that was another unfortunate thing, uh, which means that with the best of intentions even, a judge finds his hands tied. So I'm unhappy about sentencing children as adults the way it stands now. I realize that there are times when there's no choice, but there, there needs to be more flexibility. And finally, um, all of these mandatory sentences came into play. The sentences handed out to these three people were really awful. And um, I was able through Mr. Restrepo to uh, go and visit JC. He was held in a really rather wonderful place, the juvenile facility in Berks County, um, where he made amazing progress. This is a child who, he was an orphan. His mother died of cancer, his father died of AIDS. Uh, the social, our social services failed. He was out on the streets got up, caught up with two other men um, who had very similar stories in their backgrounds. And uh, anyway, I went to visit him the first time with Mr. Estrepo, his lawyer, and his counselor was there too. His counselor told me later on that he was very apprehensive, JC. He had had a dream that I had come and 
put a Bible on the table, and then opened up the Bible, pulled out a gun that I put inside it, and shot him. Uh, first thing I did, not knowing about the stream, was put down a Bible on the table. I bought him, I bought out, bought a Spanish Bible and put it down there. And he sort of recoiled, and the counselor quickly said, "I'll take this." <laughs> uh, but then we had a very good discussion, and I visited him later on uh, alone. Um, he was a good kid. He was a good kid who had had a horrible life and had been unable to find direction. Um, at court, I was able to speak on his behalf and the judge was kind enough to reduce what would have been a rather lengthy uh, kidnapping charge down to one day. But still left, left JC with 21 years. By that time he had turned 16, so he would be in his late 30s when he does finally get out. Um, during his time in Bergskade, he had had a rough beginning. He took his English teacher hostage. I don't know how to make friends and influence people. Uh, but eventually, that teacher wrote the most amazing letter. She had been working in prisons and was lived with youth for a long time. And she had always had this feeling that someday she would really see somebody who turns around and makes an extraordinary change. And she says, this is the one. Um, both for himself and the way he was helping other juvenile inmates. There were some Chinese inmates who had no English, and he was sitting down very patiently, being a Spanish speaker. And his, his, his English was a bit rusty, but he was really able to make a difference with that. Um, I think my great, I mean, I'm fine. I spent a few hours in the hospital, then got home. Um, I think I'm better than I was before, I tell people, because now every time the weather changes, my, I can feel it in my uh, shoulders, I can predict the weather. Uh, yes, it's impacted for a while my family. It still does, they can get out of jury duty because they always ask you, uh, have you has a member of your family been a victim of, of a violent crime? And they say yes, and let them out. Uh, but I remember, the uh, sentencing of the last of the three, uh, a young man in his early 20s. Uh, I, I, I brought my daughters, who were the youngest of my three, five, three children, to the sentencing. And they were in there, ah, we're going to see somebody get what he deserves because of what he did to my father. And I set them down next to this young man's family. And as the judge was reading out the sentence, he was ended up being 27 or 28 years, his fiancée, who was pregnant with his child, was sobbing. The rest of the family was crying. <coughs> My daughters did not feel good at all because they realized 
the extent of this tragedy. I was fine. The family was a bit traumatized, but they'd get over it. But these three men are still in prison as we talk. Somewhat 17 years later. And their lives are largely destroyed. So my concern is what happens to them when they get out? There has to be something in place to guarantee them initial housing, job training, and even jobs. Without that, the door is ever revolving. I concentrated on the youngest of JC. Um, our social services, which are overwhelmed, I don't condemn them in any way, but they did fail him. When he ended up without any parents, he was on his own at age 15. We need to find a way to reintegrate people into the community. And that is why when Judge Restrepo contacted me and asked me if I would be interested in today's event, I was very interested. Because after years of despairing about the way our criminal justice system was headed, I now see that there's a bit of hope. We have now determined that uh, sentencing a juvenile to life without parole is cruel and unusual. That's a big step. Uh, I also feel, though, that there should be a way where if juveniles are sentenced as adults, that at some point, maybe around their 21st birthday, they can be brought back into court and with a full report of their progress or lack thereof in prison. And maybe these sentences then can be revisited. But that's just my dream. Uh, I thank you for your time. I thank you for being asked to be here. Good morning. Um, my name is Michael Whittington, and um, I have like a, a pretty crazy story. When I was younger, I was involved in, um, it, it, it was like a robbery going wrong, and um, I was a juvenile, tried as an adult, and um, I wound up doing some time. And um, during that time, the victim of the, the crime actually wrote me, and um, it, it touched me. And, and it like, hit me like, real hard, and um, I, I had brought her back, and this explained the whole situation to her, and we continued to write each other back and forth. And as soon as my court date, she um she came to court and spoke on my behalf. Cause she said, I mean, when people young, you you don't think about the stuff that you don't. And and, and I feel like real bad. Like that's somebody's son, and 
it's Tom Benoit, he died, and it's, it's crazy, it, it hurt me, because I actually had a chance to like sit down and talk to him, and, and we all became friends, and he forgave me, so like, like his whole family forgave me, and, and it was just crazy, and me and him went out to high schools and spoke to the high school students, like, violence is, is, is not the way, it's definitely not the way, like, you're young, like, it's, it, you have so much in front of you, like, you have work in front of you, like, finish school or something, and it, it's just crazy, and, 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 like, I actually got in touch with New Arts through, um, through, um, prison. They actually came to the jails and, and seen my talent, and they really liked it, and, and they gave me a promise, and they haven't broken it yet. I've been employed with them for about seven years, like seven years, and it's just been great. Like it's that's that's family right there, and it's it's, it's just a beautiful it's, it's just a beautiful situation. And, and um, Kevin Johnson, um, and man, every time I think about it, I just I mean it hurt me because. I mean, I, I was hanging with like the wrong crowd. It's like, you know, like, you went to school and, and you know, like, you make your friends and stuff. And some people is like, in the stuff that you're not really into. And you just get caught up in a situation. And it, it, it was something that should have never happened. But, you know, people, you know, do stupid things. And, and it wound up costing him his life. And, and just put like major time on ours. And I feel real, real, real bad. And recently my little brother had just died in April, six days after my birthday. So I was, I just, just it's just like feeling that pain, like how that brought me. I could just imagine the people out here that's going through it every day, because it, it, it's like a pain that you can't describe. It's, it's really, really, it's, it's real, real crazy. It's, like I, I can't even think about him. Or he had my birthday coming up, October tenth. It's like it's getting close, and we used to talk sports all the time and football. And I can't even do that no more. He used to call me every day, just talking trash. His favorite team was the Titans. Just talk trash all the time, and I always tell him the Titans is garbage. <laughs> They're pretty garbage. <laughs> I go out to his grave and just sit there and like, yeah, y'all ain't getting nowhere, I told you. <laughs> and um, I was on the phone with him 30 minutes before that happened. And um, he wanted me to lie to my mom so he could get out of the house. He was only 22, but she still treated him like a baby. I done been moved on. I, you know. And um, he wanted me to lie to my mom for him to get out the house to go around the way. And, I wish that I could have just kept him on the phone like a little while longer because that, I mean, if God planned it, there's no way anybody could stop it. But I, I mean, I don't want to question God, but I still wish I could have kept him on the phone for about two minutes longer, three minutes longer. It could have probably like slowed the process of him getting over there. Because as soon as he got around there, he had on headphones coming out of the store. He got, he got shot one time, lost his life. You know what was going on and nothing. And I, and I think about that last phone call every single day. And I can just imagine the crime that I did. I, 
I can imagine how his mom feel or his brother or his sister. I I could just imagine. It's it's not a good feeling. It's not a good feeling at all. And um I I really hope to talk to his mom someday recently to tell her how I'm doing because me and her became good friends too. And she seen she seen something in me that I didn't see, as well as the Murars, they seen something in me that I didn't see. And ever since then I've just been I've I really, really changed my life and whenever I can I talk to the youth and just tell them like that, that that's not the way. Like like the way y'all going is is getting you nowhere. Y'all y'all young, like you have the world in front of you, like go to college, finish school, something, man. Like you you out there on, on, on the corner just wasting just wasting your time. I go past there and still see the same people I seen for, for like what ten years, fifteen years doing the same exact stuff. Like, come on. It's just not worth it. It's, it's just not worth it and <coughs> And like hopefully one day, the, like the youth will finally wake up and, and just see what's going on around them. And and I really believe in the reentry. I I believe in it. Like I've seen people that been to prison, came out and is doing real, real, real good for themselves. Like I I really believe in it. And 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 hopefully it continues to be that way because everybody that's in prison, I don't think is a bad person. They just just put in in like certain circumstances to, to make them do what they, you know, did. And I, I don't know, let's pray for better. Thank you. for five years before there was a chance for him to go to trial. 
He has two little children. He's 40 years old. He's two little children. He's a boy who's five, who was an infant when my brother went to prison, and a boy who's seven. And probably about a year or so ago, um, my brother is friends with Father Paul Marcy. He said, why don't you call him? Because there was a funny story that was not really a funny story, where the older boy, Jack, said to his mom, and I have a fantastic sister-in-law who always takes her children to visit my brother, where, where Jack said, you know, it's my birthday. Can I have a cake that's orange? Because my dad and all of his, all of his friends wear orange. So, I mean, we're laughing about it, but it, it's, it's, what do you do? There's no handbook to figure out how do we deal with this? How do we deal with the folks whose, you know, family member has been killed? They hate us. I mean, absolutely hate us. Um, they live in the same neighborhood that we live in. Family members live on the same street that my mother lives on. And if they see my mother in the street, they say, I hate you. You're evil. Your son is evil. I wish you would die today. So there is, how do we deal with that? We can't say we're sorry. They don't believe us. I mean, although we don't believe my brother did this, it happened in a place that we are responsible for. So. In a way, we are taking the responsibility for what happened to that poor man. He's gone. He's gone forever. They're never going to get him back. And we're never going to get my brother back. And we just didn't know how to deal with that. So we, we started to have some conversations with Father Paul, and I thought this would be a good opportunity to come and hear what everyone else is doing, um, to try to understand how you muddle through, how do you raise children and get them to understand, you know, where your father is, why he's there, and how do you make a life for that? How do I help my mother not be hiding and, and you know, not perpetuate that idea of we're children of survivors? Instead, I would like our children to be, you know, we're children whose dad is in prison. I'm not a child of somebody who's in prison. My dad's in prison. And that's really what, um, I'm, I'm trying to look for. So I'm here really for a personal reason. It's probably not the best thing to say, but really it is. And um, looking for answers, looking for answers for my family. A lot of folks in my family are not open to this kind of dialogue. My mother did not want me to come here today. She didn't want me to tell anybody our business. Um, and it's a little sad. So coming from the background that we have, we're kind of people of action. So if you have bad things happen to you, you get through them. This is a situation where we don't know how to get through this situation. There, there's no place you can look on the internet and say, how do you figure out how not to go financially destitute with legal bills? How do you find a way to, you know, try to get off from work to visit a family member who's five or six hours away and you need a whole day to do that? What happens when your family member is sick and you can't help them? And then how do you support your, your parents, especially parents who are growing older, in a way where, not that they accept what is happening, but they're able to live in a way that they don't be afraid to leave the house. That they don't feel that shame, whether it's you know, projected from somebody from the outside, or the shame of, you know, now someone knows our business kind. And, and that's the kind of answers that I look for, and that's the kind of answers that my family looks for. We also look for a way to be able to connect with um, the man who was killed's family. 
they, I don't believe they're happy, and I don't think they'll ever be, ever be happy, but I don't also think that they'll ever not blame us. They don't just blame my brother, they blame us. And they've been compensated money-wise. My brother's been convicted, and he's been sent to, sent to life in prison. But it, it, it's not enough. So how do you make anything be a tiny bit enough? And uh, that's the answers I'm looking for. So, any help, thanks. <laughs> If I can say one more thing, talk about connections. Father Shin was our Russian teacher <laughs> 15 years ago, my sister, brother, and I. So, Father, I don't know, but it's my brother that you taught. So, it's very weird, like how, how you go through life. And, uh, yeah. That's really an unbelievable coincidence, if it's a coincidence. I know I speak for all of us when I say how much we admire the courage and the generosity that we have just seen here, and uh, we're very grateful to all of you. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.